know the interesting theme, you know, throughout this, all of the worship, and even through the announcements, and even through the scripture and the exhortation that Barrett gave, it seems to me if there was one recurring theme, then it would be obvious that that recurring theme is simply the majesty of Jesus. Look at that. Look at that. I'm going to use a mic too. I forgot about it. Um, I apologize. Um, you know, we're working with the uh, the technical stuff, and we didn't have the sound. The opening video was going to have sound, and uh, we didn't have a chance to get uh, the right program downloaded. We thought that another program was going to work, and it, and it didn't. So I apologize about the technical difficulty. Bear with us. We're, we're trying to get there a little bit at a time. There may be a few bumps along the way. Um, you guys should know where we're at. Uh, we're going to be in John 3 again. <laughs> Um, this is going to be uh, part three of the uh, the series um, on John three sixteen. Um, if you know, if you remember, I told you each week you were going to be able to write at the top of your notes all of blank, and I'm so sorry. I have forgotten something. Please, children, would you follow Miss Flo over to the fellowship hall, and she has got children's church planned. I told you there's going to be some bumps and bruises along the way. <laughs> And I completely forgot about that. I'm so sorry, Miss Flo. Look at them go. Such beautiful faces. All right, so each day I told you that we'd be able to write all of blank um, for each message. Uh, and so this week is no different. It will be all of and then I will fill in the blank as we go. To recap a little bit, we decided and we went through the parable in Matthew chapter 7 um, where Jesus exhorts them not to build their house upon sand but upon a rock, showing that the man that built his house upon sand, which we identified as fragmented theology or fragmented doctrine, that house when the storm came, when the persecution came, when the winds blew, it was destroyed and great was its destruction. The, mouse, the man who built his house on a rock the winds came, the storms came, the persecution came, all of that stuff, and the house stood still because it was founded on the rock, the specific rock, which is Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way. He says, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So then we proceeded to look at the John chapter 3, and we looked at the context of the conversation that Nicodemus was asking a specific question when Jesus says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus wasn't just pulling that verse out of nowhere. He was answering the specific question that Nicodemus had asked Him. And that specific question was how to be born again, or how to be born of the Spirit. So John 3.16 is essentially a crucial part in that answer. And then Jesus goes on to reference the Numbers chapter 21 and the bronze serpent and shows that just as Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert, thus the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was essentially saying that the thing that's killing the people in the wilderness, the bronze serpent, the fiery flaming serpents, Moses was commanded to make that image and hold it up and the people that were poisoned would look upon that image of their destruction and they would be healed. Jesus became sin. Sin is killing us. We are dead already in trespasses and sins. It's killing us. And Jesus became sin so that when we look upon Him, the image of sin, we can find our healing and our salvation. Isaiah 45:22 says, Look on the Lord and be saved. Then last week, and I'm just doing a bit of recap here. Last week we 
looked at the first two words in the scripture reference, John 3.16. We looked at for God. God first, looking at the majesty and the fear of God, that he is Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He who is, who was, who is to come, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The list goes on and on. He is God. He is sovereign. He is Lord of all. Uh, Barrett was talking about that this morning in his exhortation of Romans 8.28, for all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and those who love God. God couldn't do that if he wasn't sovereign. He couldn't orchestrate and ordain and fix every event to work in our favor. John Piper says that God is working out for you a peculiar glory that you will experience one day. Every bit of suffering, every bit of sickness, every bit of heartache, it's not meaningless. Every bit of it has a meaning. And the great thing about it is that even in our worst afflictions and our worst sufferings and our worst persecutions and our worst agonies, it's still referenced as light affliction, momentary affliction that isn't even worthy to be compared with the glory that awaits us. So week one... It was all of grace. How to be born again. It's done by all of grace. Your spiritual rebirth, your salvation is all of grace. It's nothing to do with you. It's all of grace. Week two, it's all of God. The very start of John 3.16, for God, for God. God initiated it. God did it. It was His choice. It was His will. It was His decree. It was His desire. God did it. Not us. He did it. So week one, all of grace. Week two, all of God. And now we're going to get in to the crux of today. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. We're going to look at two parts. We're going to look at so loved the world, and then we're going to look at that He gave His only Son. And I'm doing this in a teaching format because I really want this foundation to be solid. That's why we're going slow. That's why we're doing it in a teaching format. It's not because I think less of anyone's intellect here. It's because I want us to be on the same page when we start to get into theological matters and differences of doctrine and that kind of thing. So we're going basic, and it's not because of you. It's just so that that way we can all go together. And when someone asks, why do we believe the way that we believe? Why do we think that we are saved? We have a strong foundation to reference. So God, for God so loved the world, the first thing I want to point out is the object of love, of God's love, is the world. Now, the Greek word, I don't usually say Greek words because I'm terrible at it, and I don't want you to think that I'm trying to be smarter than what I am because a lot of you would be able to see through that. But this Greek word is easy. It's cosmos. Some people say cosmos, but that sounds silly. So it's cosmos. It's the Greek word for world. Um, and it has several... D- what? Is it cosmos? Is that what you're saying? Nah, whatever. Anyway... It is the Greek word for world. Now, the important thing that we need to know here is this word actually has several different meanings. Most often it's used to describe the people that inhabit the world. Um, in 1 John chapter 2, it says, Be not of the world, or love not the world, for all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, and the lust of eyes, and the pride of life. That's not the world that it's talking about here. That's the world system. It isn't saying that God so loved the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life that he gave his only son for it. God hates that. God hates sin, hates iniquity, hates it. No, that's the world system. What this is talking about is it's talking about the inhabitants of the world. And moreover, it's actually talking about a specific group of the inhabitants of the world, the people that come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. So that is what is meant by the object of his love is the world. Now I want to look at something very, very specific. So love the world. 
you know, and I, I said this last week how we so often skip over terms. The word so, you know, we just, for God so loved the world and we're getting to the crux of the text, but we don't usually look at that little two-letter word so. And it actually has a double meaning. It means to what great extent. So I so love faith or I so desire to go have lunch after this. It's the great extent and the fervency and the emphasis that I'm putting behind my words saying, I really, really love this thing. It provides emphasis. But the next meaning of it is, in what manner? So it's saying God loved the world, and this is the manner, this is the extent that He loved the world that He gave. And that, that's really what I want to look at. I want to... I want to go to Romans chapter 8 because I want to look at what love actually is. And it's interesting that Barrett keeps, keeps cheating. He's looking at my notes and going to those chapters to read in his exhortation. He keeps saying Romans, and I'm like, really? <laughs> just kidding, buddy. I'm just kidding. We're going to go to Romans 8, verse 31. Um, and it's basically, it's just continuing on from where Barrett left off pretty much. What then shall we say to these things? To what things? To all the things that we heard in Barrett's exhortation. To the fact that we're so weak and so depraved that we don't even know how to pray. To the fact that God takes all of these events and these afflictions and He constructs them and ordains them for our good, for that peculiar glory that we spoke about. What shall we say to the beginning of chapter 8 when there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus? What shall we say to the fact that God's made us free in Christ Jesus? What shall we say in the fact that God condemns sin in the flesh through Christ Jesus? What shall we say to the fact that if we set our mind on the flesh, it's death? Or if we set our mind on the Spirit, it's life and peace? When he's saying, what shall we then say to these things? He's saying, what shall we say? How do we respond to all the things that we've just heard in the first seven and a half chapters of this book? Everything about the depravity of man, about the redemption of God, about God's plan for us, God's love for us, God's working everything out, how we're dead in Christ and raised with Christ and how we can abide in Christ and Christ can abide in us. When he's saying, what shall we say to these things? He's saying, what do we say to all the things that have happened up to this point? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, the Bible never says that there will, no be there will not be persecution. It never says that there will not be affliction. It never says that there will not be sickness. It never says that there will not be death. There will not be pain. There will not be uh, attacks, persecution, all of this. It says in Isaiah, it says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper, but it never says no weapon will ever be formed against you. No weapon formed against you will prosper, but there will be weapons formed against you. And when it says that they will not prosper, it's not even talking about prospering in this life. Because some of the weapons that are formed against us do prosper in this life. Sometimes people get sick. Sometimes that sickness kills their natural body. Sometimes people get broke. Sometimes that brokenness takes their stuff. And that looks like it's prospering in this life. But the truth of the matter is, is when it says no weapon formed against you shall prosper, what the actual meaning of that is, is that no weapon has the ability to take you away from the love of God. And we'll see that as we continue on in Romans chapter 8. Verse 32, this is probably the most or one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The point of this verse is that every single promise that's in the entirety of Scripture can be based on this verse right here. 
And the reason for that is, is what's called deductive reasoning or even inductive logic or even rational logic. And the point of it is, is that if God didn't spare Jesus, Jesus is the pinnacle of value. He is the highest of high. He is the ultimate price. So if God was willing to give the ultimate price, he was giving to, willing to give the most valuable object that there is to give for us and graciously did it then how will he not also with him give, graciously give us all things? So the point is, is that if God gave us Jesus, any other promise can be grounded on the fact that God already gave us the best, so why would he withhold the less? Does that make sense? If I say to you, you have a million dollars available from me, and before I even write you the check, before it's even finalized, you come to me and you say, can I borrow a hundred? Yeah, you can borrow a hundred. How how silly of a question is that? If you're about to take a million dollar check from me to the bank and deposit it, and be able to withdraw all of that money into your account, you come to me first and say, "Is it okay if I take a hundred of this?" That's the logic here. God gave us the million. Really, it's way more than that. But God gave us the million, so He's willing to let us borrow the hundred. If that makes sense as uh, deductive logic there. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Notice the language there that it is God that has done it. God has justified us. That goes back to last week when it says it's all of God. For God did it. God justifies us. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who can condemn us when Christ is the one who died? Christ paid our penalty. More than that, more than that, more than the fact that he died us, he also died for us, he also rose from the dead and is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. By very, his very action of being ascended and sitting upon the heavenly mercy seat, his very position is the intercession. In the Old Testament, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a sacrifice and he would shed its blood. He would take it into the Holy of Holies one time a year and put his blood on the mercy seat. And simultaneously, they would have on the front of the tabernacle, they would have a red string tied. And if God accepted the sacrifice, that red ribbon would become solid white. It's saying that Christ Jesus has ascended to the heavenly mercy seat. He put his blood there and it's accepted by God. So now that we who were red as scarlet by our sins are now white as snow. We are pure in God's eyes. We are justified. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. That goes back to, if God is for us, no weapon formed against us can prosper. Nothing can take us from His sovereign hand. Nothing can take those that are given from God to Christ Nothing can separate them from Christ. Christ will not lose any one of them. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. More than conquerors. And Have you ever asked yourself on reading this, what exactly is more than a conqueror? I mean, think about that for, for an instance. Two armies go to battle. One wins, one loses. One's the conqueror and one's the conquered. So how can you be more than a conqueror? How can you be more than the victorious army? And the answer to that question is simple. The thing that is more than a conqueror is the prize that's worth fighting for in the begin in, to begin with. 
if two armies go to battle to wage war on a piece of land, every soldier in that army is therefore saying that that piece of land is worth more than their life. It's more valuable than they are because they're willing to die for it. Christ has taken us. And no, we are not preeminent over Him. No, we are not of more value than Him. But in His desire for relationship with us, He laid down His life and made us more than a conqueror because now we're not even a conqueror or a conquered. Now we are the prize worth fighting for because we are the price that Christ was willing to pay. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason I wanted to go verse by verse in that is because I wanted to show what the love of God actually is. And I think that those verses are one of the... I could have went to 1 Corinthians 13 and said, Love is kind, love is gentle, love does not boast. And we could have went through the list and said, This is how we define love. But I think more so than that, going to Romans 8 and showing what God was willing to pay, the merits of Christ's sacrifice truly, truly give us an idea of what love and the love of God actually is. So the next part of John 3.16 that he gave his only son. And we can look at back at Romans 8.32 since we're on that, that section. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He that, that he gave his only son. This is what it's meant by the so and says what manner. This is the manner that God loves us. God so loved us that he gave. Love requires an action. I've preached this before and I'll just do a brief recap of it. The one similarity that love and faith have in common is that both cannot exist without works following. We can have works and say that we have faith, but we can just be doing works out of habit, out of tradition, out of obligation, begrudgingly, and not have the faith to back it up. But you cannot have faith and works not follow. It's impossible. Scripture says that faith without works is dead. It doesn't exist. It has no life in it. So we can say that we believe in God, but if that belief doesn't produce an action or a work in us, then that belief is not really faith in God. Faith requires action. It requires work. It requires obedience. It requires holiness. And it produces all these things in us, but faith is easily identified by the works that follow. And the same is true with love. You can have the works and you can do the nice things and the kind things for people and not love them and not have the love of God in you. But you cannot have the love of God in you reflected towards people and not have the works. I cannot see Faith sick and in bed and love her and not want to, to get her medicine, to bring her food, to make her soup you know, go to the grocery store and get anything that she needs. Just like we cannot see a fellow church member that is struggling and not want to contribute to that struggle, not want to help them bring out, bring them out of that, that time of trial and that time of affliction. We want, because of our love, if we truly love one another, then we're going to want to bear one another's burdens. When we see someone that's struggling financially, we're going to want to charitably give to that if we truly love them. If we see somebody that's sick, then we're going to want to go and help minister to their needs. We're going to want to help them get better by praying for them, by bringing them meals, by 
coming to their house and cleaning for them or, or anything like that. And I'm not just listing out, hey, this is the church to-do list. These are things that we're not doing that we need to do. What I am saying is that the truest way to see that we love one another is by the works that we do for one another. There's a simple way that you can see where somebody's heart's at. Their checkbook, their calendar, and the last one has just escaped me their abilities, their talents, where they put their time at, where they put their money at, where they put their uh, conversation. That's the last one. The things that people talk about. So if every time I'm around you and you never talk about the Word and we, we never get into a scriptural conversation, then and I look at your money and you're not giving to the church. And I'm, this isn't a tithing message. I'm just saying, and you're not giving to the church. And then I'm looking at your calendar and you're only at the church one or two weeks a month. Then I can honestly say that your desire may not be 100% for the church. However, if I look at you and you're tithing and then you're giving above your tithe. And every time I talk to you, you can't help but talk about the word. And every time I, the doors are open, you're there at the church and then you're calling and asking to get into the church so that you can work at the church. Then that lets me know that your desire is for the church. And the same is true with one another. If we love one another, then our checkbooks will reflect that. Our time will reflect that. Our conversation will reflect that. Our talents, even our abilities, will reflect those things. The things that we'll be like, well, hey, I have this ability. Can I use it to contribute to the, the mission? What I'm saying is there are ways that we can see that love is there. And the way that we see that God's love is for us is by the action of giving His Son. That's what is meant by so. For God so loved the world. This is the great extent that He gave His best. He did something. His love produced an action. All right. In your Bibles... We're going to go to 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to kind of finish this out um, and answer the question of all of what? What is, what is all of to be born again? There's got to be a better way to ask that question. What is all of to be born again? <laughs> That's a terrible way. That's so grammatically incorrect. Faith is probably flinching. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. We're just going to go verse by verse. Uh, maybe not spend a lot of time here. I know it's Mother's Day and uh, everybody's probably got plans and want to love on the, the awesome ladies in their life. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Notice the language here. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. See, an interesting thing about love is love cannot be created. Love can only be reflected. You don't have the ability in your heart to create love. All that you have the ability for is to reflect the love of God. Right. God loves us, then we have the ability to love others and return God's love back to Him. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So they're starting to answer the question here in this language. Whoever loves has been born of God. God is love. If you don't love, then you don't know God. The love of God was made manifest, appeared, was made obvious among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So this is how we're born of God, this is how we show that we know God, and this is how we live in God through love. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word. It basically means mercy seat or vertical ascension, taking the blood to the heavenly mercy seat. Um, uh, we won't get into those terms right now. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God loved us. Now we're commanded to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So now we're seeing that if we love one another, God's love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Now, we said last week, and I think we touched on it the week before, that the, to be born of the Spirit is not about something coming out of you. It's about something coming into you and about you going into something. It's about God's Spirit coming into, to abide into you and about you abiding in the Spirit of God. Here is very clear that love is the fruit and the evidence showing that God's love and God's Spirit abides in you and you abide in the Spirit of God. This is the answer to the question, how do we be born again? We are born again by believing, confessing, accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord. We are born again by allowing God to love us, allowing God to love us, allowing God to love us. That's a big one because sometimes we don't. Receiving that love, reflect, reflect, blah, tongue tied, reflecting that love back to God and reflecting that love outward to our church family, to our community, and to people that we've never met. And allowing that love to produce a following action in us. Look at verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides us in us and his love is perfected in us his love is made complete in us that shows that god's love towards us is designed to produce something in us and it's only completed in us when we reflect that love to other people so here's the challenge the challenge is number one receiving god's love and accepting it as your own that if you were here today in this building and you don't have to be in this building because this podcast will be online. If you are able to right now in your heart confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord, believe it in your heart, and honestly know that Christ came into the flesh and died for your sins and rose again, that makes you, that has that is one of the acknowledging factors that you are a Christian. Works and stuff go into all of that but and perseverance to the end. But the truth of the matter is, is that if you have the ability to do that, then God loves you. His love is for you. If God's love is for you and His desire is towards you, then you have the ability to receive that and know that you're prized in His sight. Just like we went into Romans 8.32, that God did not spare His own Son. He didn't spare the best, but He gave it freely for every one of us. If He gave His best for every single one of us, then He will not withhold what's less. And compared to Christ Jesus, everything is less. 
Everything is light and fleeting and fading. Compared to Christ Jesus, everything is dim or grim, obviously less than. And if God gave us the best, he won't withhold the less. So the first challenge is to receive God's love. Know that God loved you. And he didn't just love you, he so loves you. With a great emphasis, with great fervor, with great desire towards you. And the second part of that is to reflect that back to God and give Him your best. He gave you His best, give, you, give Him your best. All that you have, all that you are. Regardless of how little value that you think that it is, regardless of how fleeting and fading you think that your love is, give God your best because He deserves so much more. Faith said that during worship. God deserves so much more than all the praise and the honor and the glory that we could ever give Him. And the third part, reflect that to other people. Love one another. This perfects the love of God in us if we love one another. Another part of this epistle, John says it this way. He says, if we love God and keep His commandments. That's, it's not a new commandment. It's the commandment that's been from the beginning to love God and to keep His commandments. So, love God, let God love you, and love other people. Make sense? Easy? Simple? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So, in answer to the question, all of what? All of Christ, who is the manifestation of God's love. So you can put all of Christ, you can put all of love. So, how to be born again? It's all of grace, it's all of God, and it's all of Christ, God's love manifested towards us. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you take this word and I ask that you seep it into our heart. Lord, it wasn't complicated and it wasn't long. Lord, I just ask that this very simple truth, that you love us, that you gave your best for us, that you gave Christ Jesus that not only did you give Christ Jesus, but Christ Jesus came willingly to show his love for us. That he died, took our sins, and took our curse upon himself and died on the tree. Was put in the grave, rose three days later, and ascended into glory. God, we just... We truly stand in awe of the fact that you chose us that we are elected by you to be your chosen people, that your blood covers every ounce of who we are, all of our mistakes and misfortunes, all of our failures, all of our faults, all of our reoccurring weaknesses. Lord, your blood paid it all. And Lord, for whatever reason you looked upon a people, you first looked in yourself and had so much love and you looked upon a people so undeserving of that love and you thought fitting in your good pleasure to show that people love. God, we stand in awe of that because we know we don't deserve it. We deserve death, hell, and the grave, but you chose and desired to give us Jesus instead. Lord, let us accept that love. Let us take that love and realize that we are of value. The way that we discover what's valuable is how much someone's willing to pay for it. And you paid the highest price, so we know that we are of infinite value in you. 
Jesus, let us accept that love. Let us reflect that love back to you, saying that we are able to love you because you first loved us. And then that, let that overflow of love spread to those around us and to the community beyond us. Let us truly fulfill and perfect your love by loving one another. And let that love produce a work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Lee. Go in peace. Go in peace.